All right, welcome. Welcome to Redemption Church. I'm really, really glad you're here this morning. Uh, my name is Dave. I'm the, uh, the pastor here. And uh, just by way of introduction, um, kind of first things first, I have a stutter. So just so you know um, what that is, um, it isn't the cold weather, although it is cold. Um, I met someone this morning from Chicago area, or sorry, some from middle of uh, Illinois. And I was like, it's freezing here. And he just kind of chuckled. But um, yeah, so it is, though. It's, it's so good. I love it. Well, busted out the full, full handle. Um, and so that's nice. So again, if you're new, welcome. We are Redemption Tucson. And um, Redemption Church is one church in multiple congregations throughout um, Arizona. So there are six uh, re- redemption congregations in the F- Phoenix area, and then one was just planted um, up in Flagstaff about a year and a half ago. Then we were planted here in Tucson um, about two and a half mo- months ago, and now we're excited to announce um, that we're actually planting um, Redemption Peoria, so kind of the northwest F- Phoenix area. A good friend of mine, um, actually, I think the guy who. Uh, f- initiated Andrew and Corey's wedding down here. So anyway, he's a great guy. Um, so if you have family, friends in Northwest Phoenix, um, yeah, ask me for details and things like that. And it's also online on the website. On that note, um, uh, let me announce first, we're about to move into the, uh, the Advent season. So our first announcement um, is starting next week, we're going to be entering into our Advent series. We're going to be going through a specific Series. It is the return of the King, and every other congregation has to say it's the return of the King. But there are no hobbits. But you're blessed to have a pastor who could pass as a hobbit. So <laughs> it will be the return of the King with some hobbits um, involved. Um, but it's it's a, an, an exciting time though that we're about to move move into um, because Advent every year is something that the church historically has looked ahead to. It's looked forward to um, the the birth of Jesus and, and the time when um, there was anticipation for when God would send His Son and take on flesh and um, and, and be born in Bethlehem. And so we're going to enter into a season where we anticipate that. But we're also in the time in um, what is referred to as the here and the not yet of the kingdom. That Jesus came and lived and died and rose again. And so we know he was already born, but he promised that he would return. And that he would usher in his kingdom in its fullness one day when he returns. So in this coming season, we're going to go through a time where we anticipate and learn what it means to, to, to await for the return of the king. And so I'm, I'm, I'm excited for this time. Um, I definitely encourage you, if you're here in town, to invite friends or family. This is a time of year where friends and family are often interested. What is Christmas all about? And does it just have to do with Jesus being born 2,000 years ago? Or is there something else? And of course, there is something else. And that's what we'll be um, talking about. On that note, I, I just want to... Um, quickly say, if you live in Tucson, kind of um, when the school is out, when the U of A is out, this is a time that we've been kind of anticipating for a while, because a number of you live elsewhere, live up in Phoenix, and um, you pay taxes in a different zip code, or your parents pay taxes 
um, from a different zip code. But if you are, are here and you live in, in, in Tucson, we're excited for this season. Not excited to see our, our friends, our family as the church here be gone, but we're excited to just kind of have a sense of who lives in Tucson kind of week in and week out throughout the year. And so with that, I want to encourage you that um, if that is you and you sit kind of you're out here on the sides, that in the coming weeks, um, why don't you move in here because it's going to be a l- little bit smaller, but we're also going to spend some time really just um, a building into our community, kind of getting to know again who, who's here in Tucson 12 months out of the, out of the year. So um, uh, with that too, Stephen m- mentioned it earlier, I want to ask you to fill out a c- contact card. If you've, um, if you've never filled one out and you've been going here all along, please fill out a connection card, I think they're actually officially called. And it's not something just to fill out once so we can hit your email and send you spam and you know things like that. Um, it's more that we want to stay connected. So if you have prayer requests, if you have a question, if you have something, fill out a connection card. Um, we're starting to grow to the size that I can't promise that an email to me will get answered you know, promptly. It could get lost in the masses. But if you fill out a connection card, that's the best way. Somebody will get back in touch with you promptly. And um, so with that, just put down prayer requests, questions. And also, um, we want to make sure everybody's connected and on the, on the um, email list. Because in fact, at the end of the sermon, we're gonna, I'm going to announce we're going to send something out through the, through the email that we, that we have, that we do once a week. So make sure you fill out a um, connection connection card. And then the last, um, the last announcement is, um, is it going to be up there? Can you put it up there? Cause I want to, yes, the night of prayer. That's really important, really exciting. Um, again, we're moving into a season where we're really going to be focusing on kind of who are we as a church in Tucson. We exist for Jesus's glory and the good of Tucson. And so we have a heart to reflect socioeconomically, ethnically, generationally, in every way, the people of Tucson. And so we're going to just spend some time on December 7th from 6.30 to 8.30 praying, just gathering together. We're going to have three different categories that we're just going to walk through and spend the majority of that time in prayer. And so we are going to have childcare. Um, that'll actually be at my house. Um, we have a bunch of kids, so it made sense to have it at our house, and we're going to have child care provided, and then we're going to be praying in um, a couple's house just like a block away. So anyway, if you want any information on that, again, fill out a connection card, make sure that you get the email, but it's an exciting time. I want to ask you and encourage you to come and to just pray for what God has in store for Tucson. Amen? All right, so now let's um, transition. We're going to be in Luke chapter 23. We're not going to get there right away, okay, because we kind of need to do some time building up to it. But with that, um, if you don't have a Bible, we want to make sure you have one. So please hold your hand up high. If you don't own one, keep this one. If you just forgot it today and you don't have one, I think it's easier to walk through it as you go. So hold your hand up high and keep it up, please, and then... Baby Calvin there will be sure to make sure you have, you have one. But yeah, hold your hand up high. Don't um, take it down. So um, there you go. Right here is one that we need. So um, again, if you don't own one, keep this one. We want to make sure everybody has a Bible. And so this week we're um, walking through the last of the four Gs, or it ain't nothing but a G thing, baby, has been our series, um, but more appropriately known, the four Gs. And it's four attributes of God's character that we saw that um, was, was read earlier out of Psalm 1, 
45 that, 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 that tells us of who is God and how life is lived most rightly in response to God and His character. And we looked at the fact that God is great, so you don't have to be in control. God is glorious, so you don't have to fear others. And then last week, we heard that God is good, so you don't have to look elsewhere. And then this week, we're looking at the fact that God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. But, but the fact is, um, we, we're built in such a way that we do feel a need to prove ourselves. We, we tend to live before an audience, whoever it might be. There are tons of different ways in life that we feel like we need to prove ourselves. And we're asking the question, will I be accepted? Do I m- m- measure up? What, will, what grade will people give me in life? And we feel a need to prove ourselves in all kinds of different ways. Um, some of us feel that we need to prove ourselves at our jobs, in our workplace. And this does not mean God is gracious, so don't work hard and be a slacker. And No, but this means that at a foundational level, are you looking for affirmation? Are you performing for an audience that, that, that is judging you and that you have to prove yourself? Your identity is taken from what others would say about you. So in our jobs, in our workplaces, um, in our relationships, all kinds of different relationships that we're in where um, we we feel like we're going to be judged. You might play an instrument, you might be an artist, you might be an athlete, um, different things that that, that your, your academics and that you're feeling like, I just need to measure up. For, for, for some of us, most specifically, this actually shows up in our, um, in our relationship with our parents. We, we, we have relationships where we feel like our parents have expectations that we've got to measure up to. In fact, there's one guy. Um, how many of you, we can do a little interactive thing. How many of you have heard the name Todd Marinovich? He was a Football player. Okay, so not a lot of you. Yeah, so some of you here, a, a few have heard. Todd Marinovich played for the L.A. Raiders. Not the Oakland Raiders when they took a stint and they were in um, L.A. And they might be going to San Antonio next, I heard. They don't know what they're doing. But um, anyway, Todd Marinovich, every hand in here would have gone up had things worked out the way his parents thought they would. His dad and mom, like seriously, genetically thought through how to, um, how to give birth, how to produce the perfect athlete. And they thought through everything, even up to his conception, that he would be produced as this, like, this perfect, complete athlete. In fact, his dad is said to have stretched out his legs when he was two weeks old. In the crib, he would like stretch out his legs to make sure that his hamstrings had the right, you know, proper flexibility. And so growing up all throughout his life, he was this incredible athlete. He went to SC, actually, USC. Sorry to some of you about the game last night, but that was a good thing for us, right? Um, But anyway, so he went there, and he was known as RoboQB because he was fundamental. I mean, you knew that he would make the pass. He would make the play. He would run when he was supposed to run. He would throw when he was supposed to throw. He was this incredible athlete. And throughout his whole life, he would talk with his dad, and he had a big game coming up and his dad would say hey it's it's a hard game but at least you're not playing the new york giants new york giants at the time were a great team and he would say at least you're not playing the new york giants so even as like a junior high kid he would hear this his whole life and all throughout 
college, big games. At least you're not playing the New York Giants. So he's an incredible athlete, gets drafted by the L.A. Raiders, and is playing his first four games. He's, he, he's playing, he's doing well, he's talking to his dad. Who's on the schedule, the fourth game? The New York Giants. And so he plays them, and he plays incredibly well. And he wins the game, beats the New York Giants. And he calls his dad, and he says, Dad, I played the New York Giants. And his dad says, I'm proud of you. And it was one of the first times in his entire life he'd ever heard that from his dad. And in the, in the interview, the documentary where he's talking about his life story, he says, at that moment, I knew my career was over. Because my entire life, I've been playing for the approval of my father. And I knew I had it. My dad told me he was proud of me. And he had all kinds of other issues that stemmed from that that were later exposed in his life. But he was longing for the approval of his father. And if we're honest with ourselves, we're all looking, wondering, am I enough? Am I good enough? Do I have the approval of others? We, most of us live our lives in horizontal relationships with other humans, as I said earlier, in work, in, in family, in marriage, and with our parents, whatever it might be, we're looking for the approval of others. But those are all reflections of our vertical relationship with our Creator, God, our Heavenly Father. And we're asking the question, am I going to be good enough? Am I enough? In fact, um, a, a poet, kind of a, a contemporary poet from the last century, um, wrote some words, um, wrote a po- poem that, that ex- expresses this desire. And she says this. I think it'll be up here on the screen. You can fo- follow along. But um, the, the name of this poem is that I would be good. And she says this, that I would be good even if I did nothing, that I would be good Um, If I got and stayed sick, that I would be good even if I gained 10 pounds, that I would be fine even if I went bankrupt, that I would be good if I lost my hair in my youth. Amen to that, right? For some of us. That I would be great if I was no longer queen, that I would be grand if I um, was not all-knowing, that I would be loved even when I numb myself, that I would be good even when I am overwhelmed. That I would be loved even when I was fuming. That I would be good even if I was clingy. Um, That I would be good even if I lost my sanity. That I would be good whether with or without you. Does anyone know who that is? This this poet, contemporary poet? It's a Lewinus Morset. Might have heard of her. Um, From last century, 1990s. Um, So a Lewinus Morset. um, Some of you might have heard of her. Some of you might have not. She's... Um, kind of an angsty person, to say the least. And it, this is from a song that she wrote, and, um, but, but she's, she's expressing, I think, asking the question that we're all asking. She's honest with herself. Am I good enough? If I'm fully exposed, if the things that are broken about me that I live my life trying to hide, I'm trying to prove myself, if those things are exposed, will I be accepted? Will I be good enough? And that's the right question, but we so often look in all the wrong places wondering, am I good enough? And so what we're going to do in the rest of our time, we're going to enter into a story. Um, We're going to look at Jesus when he's hanging on the cross and a conversation that he has. He's, He's talking to two 
thieves on either side of him who are being crucified with him. And he holds a conversation. And he answers this question and he reveals that God is gracious so we don't have to prove ourselves. But um, I'm going to pray because I, I want to say something. I want to encourage you here that um, I'm your pastor. God's called me to be a pastor. And the most significant part of that is revealing and sharing his word in such a way that he does a work that transforms us. Okay, I'm not just a communicator of truth. And we can often come before God's Word and come to sermons and just kind of want, okay, what's the truth? What are the theological terms that I don't know that I need to make sense of? But what we need is to see God. What we need is to understand the good news of the gospel that transforms all of life. And so I'm going to pray that God would, would do a work in here in our hearts, that He would speak to us. So that we can trust that it's not about information, but transformation. And that the Holy Spirit would speak to us and would reveal the grace of God through this incredible scene where Jesus is hanging on the cross. And we understand that because of Jesus, we get grace. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray that you would, you would open us to hear you, to hear your word in this time. Lord, I do pray that um, you will show, um, show us where we overlook grace, where we become numb. For those in here who have grown up in the church, who have heard the word grace a million times, but Lord, grace has not defined their lives, I pray that um, you would do a work, Lord, that you would transform us. For others who are in here who maybe wonder, what is that word grace? I've heard it thrown around from time to time, and God is gracious. What does that even mean? I pray that you will reveal the truth, Lord, that we will all admit that we're living our lives trying to prove ourselves, and it's exhausting. Lord, I pray that you will encourage us and comfort us, convict us with the reality of what it means to live life in light of your grace, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's um, pick up with me in Luke chapter 23. Um, it'll be up here on the screen. And um, if you ever, just to kind of say, if you have a Bible, you don't know where something is, um, by all means, go to the front, look at the table of contents. There's no shame in that. I still have to do it from time to time. And, um, you know, to find some obscure books. So go there and meet me in Luke 23. We're, we're going to be in um, verses 32 through 43. So just to begin with, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. All right, let me just kind of set the stage for what's, what's, uh, what's happening here. Okay, this is the crucifixion of Jesus, right? And some of us have seen the passion of the Christ, and we understand that this is, um, that this is, a, this is a very painful um, way to die. You have nails pierced through your hands and through your feet. But the way you die when you're crucified is not, um, is not through the pain. It's not through all the beatings and everything you've endured. It's by what's called asphyxiation. Essentially, you stop breathing. Your lungs collapse because the weight of your body on the cross is, 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 is bearing down and eventually you can't breathe and you die. So even in order to speak, one had to push himself up in order to get enough, uh, enough air in his lungs to speak. 
And so we see here, even in that God's grace, that God hanging on a cross, the King of kings, the one who would usher in his kingdom, the one who we learned, we've learned before, through whom and for whom all things are one, the one who said, let there be light, is hanging on a cross, and by his grace, he cares enough for the people he's speaking to, for you and me, for the thief on the cross. He speaks. And that's the other point, is shame. The pain is significant, but the shame of this is most significant. Like to die on a cross, in fact, in this time, if someone was giving a historical account about crucifixion, they would often not even spell it out. They would give the first letter in the Greek alphabet and then like dash, 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 dash. It would be like if you said the F word and you put F and then a bunch of, you know, whatever, hashtag and all, you know, all these exclamation points and different things, right? Like you don't even want to say it. That's the way the cross was referred to. Also, the people hanging on the cross were completely naked. It's not this sense, like we, we typically see more kind of, you know, uh, more PG-13 versions. There's a loincloth or something. But these people were, the whole point was to shame them. And they were hanging there naked before everyone. Incredibly shameful, despicable way to die. And, and Jesus Um, And this actually fulfills an Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, where it says that the Son of Man would hang between thieves. And and, and thieves were despicable people. These guys were were likely violent criminals. They, They had used their life, their entire life was defined by hurting others, taking what was not theirs. They were the lowest of the low in their society. And there hangs God himself, God the Son, Jesus, between these two. And the author here, um, whose name is Luke, he's not one of the disciples, but he was a historian and a doctor, and he did all this work because he wanted everyone to know the message of who God is and God's character and what had actually happened through Jesus. And he's actually, he actually writes this and um, Acts, which is kind of like Luke part two. He writes it to a man named Theophilus, who's a powerful influencer in society. And he's wondering, what is this whole Christianity? What's it all about? And Luke writes in such a way that he reveals God's character with incredible scrutiny to know what actually happened in history. And and he takes the most effort to reveal God's grace through Jesus' interaction here on the cross. So um, pick up with me as we continue on in verse 34, and we see Jesus' interaction here with these people. The first words out of Jesus' mouth here in this case, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. Again, the shame, they're like onlookers, just watching the shame People stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Um, To be clear, Christ was not Jesus' last name. Okay, this is a title, the chosen one, the Messiah, the king. Like, you don't go over to dinner to the Christ's house. It's not like Anderson's, Brown's, Jones's, Christ's. You know, so when someone says, you know, the Lord's name in vain or just says it, it's a title. 
Jesus the Christ, Jesus the King. And so these people are watching him hanging there shamefully, saying, if you're really this Christ, the chosen one of God, save yourself. The the soldiers mocked him, coming up, offering him sour wine, saying, if you're the King of the Jews, save yourself. And there was also an inscription over him, this is the King of the Jews. And this was, again, not, a, not an honoring title. They weren't like, well, he might be the king. Let's hang up a sign just in case. They're mocking, first of all, they're mocking God's people. They're mocking the Jewish people. They're saying, hey, if this your king, shamefully hanging there, this is your, your king. Um, and, and so the, the, the Jewish rulers who were a part of putting Jesus on the cross are mad about that. And they're scoffing him and mocking him. And what does Jesus say? Father. Forgive them. They know not what they're doing. He's not saying they don't know that they're crucifying me. They don't know that they're in a trance and they don't know what they're doing. That's not what he's saying. He's saying they have no idea the depth of what I am doing for them. They don't get the grace of God that I am hanging shamefully. That we all live before an audience Wanting to prove ourselves, prove ourselves to God, to others, to ourselves, and there hangs God Himself, saying, God, they don't know the shame, their shame, that I'm taking on myself. Forgive them. And then the conversation turns to the two thieves on either side. So pick up with me in verse 39. One of the criminals who were, who, who, who were hanged railed at him. Saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Let me just explain this here too for a little bit. He's again mocking Jesus. This is like the lowest of the low in society, hanging next to God the Son on the cross. And he is mocking him. And he's saying, hey, if you really are this king, if you really are going to bring in a kingdom, then um, I'm your boy, right? Like, bring me with you, right? Some of us know this, like from elementary school, when someone's having a party and you might not like that person and you kind of make fun of them or you don't hang out with them, but they're having a party. Everyone's going to be at that party and you want to make sure you're invited too. You're like, hey, it's your birthday coming up, I heard, right? Hey, come over here, eat with me. Let's hang out together. And right, it's it's ridiculous how often that can happen. Um and that's kind of the sense that this thief has. He's not saying like, I think you're the king, you're the king. He's mocking him, but then he's looking out for number one. Just like we all do as a result of what the Bible calls the fall, sin. The fact that God created us to have our identity, our our relationship, our love, our worth in relationship with Him, we turned our backs on Him. Because of what the Bible calls sin, it's essentially us um, kind of giving God the finger, saying, um, I don't accept what you say about me. Um, I want to prove myself to myself and to everyone else, and I want to live before um, others, and I want to make myself a king. I don't think you're a worthy king, and that's what sin is, and that's the reality of the world that we all live in, just comparing ourselves to one another, abusing one another, trying to prove ourselves to one another, and we see that displayed in this thief who's hanging there and saying, look at you, you're covered in shame. Just like we are. If you are some king, uh, why don't you get down off your shameful cross and bring us with you while you're at it? 
But in an incredible turn of events, in verse 40, this other thief, who it seems, and we know from other accounts, this thief was actually mocking Jesus as well. Everyone's mocking him. And by God's incredible grace, this thief all of a sudden has a change of heart. God reveals the truth to him. And he all of a sudden sees what's going on. And this other, everyone else thinks it's just some other guy, someone else trying to take over the, 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 the kingdom of Rome, and now he's gone too far, so he's hanging there shamefully naked on a cross. And this thief all of a sudden sees the truth. And he says, But the other rebuked him. He rebukes the other thief, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but the man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's not doing what the other thief did. He's not saying, hey, if you really are a king, we're up here with you. Why don't you bring us with you? He sees the truth. He, he rebukes the other thief and says, do you not get what's happening here? We're, we're thieves. We're criminals. We deserve to be here. Justice has been given and we are here. Naked, shamefully exposed to the world. But God the Son is between us. Shamefully naked, exposed to the world. Is this justice? Has justice been given? So what does Jesus say to him? Um, you got to prove yourself first. You got to get down from the cross. You got to get baptized. You first need to be baptized. Um, you need to recite the doctrines of grace to me. You need to um, reveal that you have read all the right blogs. You've listened to all the right pastors, all the right sermons. You know all the phrases, right? You've burned all your secular CDs or for the majority of, I don't know what kids today do. In my day, it was like I went to a church camp and put my faith in Jesus and now I go and burn all my secular CDs. You guys don't have CDs anymore. Um, I don't know what you do. I erased my iPod. Um, but, uh, right, we do all the things to prove ourselves, to prove our faith. Does, is that what Jesus says? Um, get down off the cross and prove yourself first. No. What, what does he say to him? I forgive you. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. He puts his faith in Jesus, and he recognizes that the shame that Jesus is enduring, is enduring, is to cover him, is to cover his shame, is to cover our shame. Is that our understanding of what, um, what happens when we put our trust in Jesus? This guy's giving a deathbed confessional. He's lived his entire life the lowest of the lows. And let's be honest, guys. I know from Facebook, I know from some of our conversations with one another, how we live our lives, we look down our noses at other people. Man, they vote this way. They do these things. They don't have the same theology as me. They haven't read all the right books that I've read. And hear me, those are important, all right? Theology is important. Right understanding of God is incredibly important. But... 
um, do we substitute God enduring shame and hanging on the cross for all these things that we use to prove ourselves through? Is that our approach to Christianity? For too many of us, we, we have this sense of these people have committed this crime. Put them under the jail. They don't deserve this. They did what? They did that to whom? We're, we expose ourselves and how little we understand God's grace. Let me ask you a question. Look at me. How long does it take you to get to the cross when you sin? That reveals how much you understand grace. If you're on your way home and you're driving and you get angry at someone and you honk your horn or maybe you cuss at them or whatever it is, or you had a bad day at work, maybe for you, you just turn off the radio and you pray, God, I'm sorry, I can't believe I did that. And then you get home and you're good. Like just that moment kind of made you feel forgiven. And then maybe though, um, other kinds of sin, you steal from your roommate, you lie to someone else and that, uh, that takes a little bit longer. You replace it or you, you know, and then you feel good about it. What about, what about sexual sin? You, you look on the internet and you spend time there for a, a long time and how long does it take to, to feel right with God after that? Usually it's time, right? Like we take time. Like we think, oh yeah, this much time has gone by now all things are forgiven. Like it was 30 months or 30 days ago or a year ago. I haven't taken a drink in this long. I haven't done whatever it is in this long. So now I'm good. Now I've kind of washed myself clean, right? Like some of us who have older, or some of you who have older parents or some of us throughout high school perhaps had this conversation with our parents like, yeah, remember high school a long time ago? Yeah, I was on drugs the whole time. I was living a, a lie. I was living, but it's like, <laughs> Well, you know, not anymore. Now I'm, now I'm all good. I'm in my thir- 30s. That's forgiven. And nothing really changed, but, you know, time. Time went by, and so we feel clean. We feel forgiven. We feel eradicated. But, but, but what about this thief on the cross? If you understand Scripture, you and I are that thief on the cross. Let's look at a couple verses in Romans. I'm just going to read the first part of these two verses that reveal what we deserve, right? Some of us call for justice. I want justice. We deserve justice. Well, if we want justice, we get death. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, what does all mean? And all means all. The, the thief on the cross And the religious rulers who were down there mocking the other thief on the cross, the onlookers who were just sitting there kind of watching the whole whole spectacle take place, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what is the just reward for that? Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death. What you put in is sin. What you get back, what you deserve is death shameful, rejected death. We're all trying to prove ourselves and what we deserve is rejection and shame and death. But God gives grace. The the second half of both of those verses says this, 
All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, made right, forgiven by the grace, by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then Romans 6, 23, the whole verse says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. This is God's grace. Do we get grace? Do you understand God's grace? What is grace? Is it someone's name? Is it something that we've gotten used to? Um, one more modern day prophetic um, kind of poetic voice uh, I like a little more than Alanis Morissette is Bono, the lead singer of U2 a number of years ago, wrote a song called Grace. And just look at it with me, asking the same question, what is grace? And these are what we're told. Grace, she takes the blame, she covers the shame, removes the stain. It could be her name. Grace is the name for a girl. It's also a thought that changed the world. And when she walks on the street, you can hear the strings. Grace finds goodness in everything. And it ends with this. What once was hurt, what once was friction, what left a mark, no longer stings, because grace makes beauty out of ugly things. Grace makes beauty out of ugly things. What is grace? Again, earlier he said grace. She takes the blame, covers the shame, removes the stain. If you have um, a Bible, underline this passage, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. If you have one of the church Bibles, even if you're not going to keep it, underline this, okay? Just so whoever else gets it and happens to hang on to it, sees this first underline. It's one of the most clear explanations of God's grace. And it says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. Through faith, what happened to that? That thief on the cross. Didn't he prove himself? Did he do all the right things? He rightly sees God for who he is. He rightly sees Jesus for who he is. And he's hanging there. And all of a sudden he sees the shame that I'm enduring. I deserve the shame that you are taking on. Lord King Jesus. I deserve. But you are taking it in my place. This grace is the difference between Christianity, true biblical Christianity, and every other religion in the world. Every other religion says you've got to do these things, you have to live this way, you have to do all these things, and then maybe God will have grace because the good outweighs the bad, right? You ask a lot of people, will you go to heaven when you die? Well, I've never killed anyone. Good job on not being a murderer. That's great high standard. Is that what God does? No. Grace reveals that God gives us what we don't deserve because He took on what we deserve. Here, I've got to say too, a lot of us have grown up in a hijacked version of Christianity where we say, it's oh, by grace, by God's grace. But how do we live? How long does it take you to get to the cross? What's the environment that we live in? Is it full of grace? Do we understand God is gracious so I don't have to prove myself? 
That's a hijacked version of Christianity where we pile on this burden, we live seeking to prove ourselves. But real Christianity, the Christianity that Jesus ushers in, hanging shamefully on the cross, says you don't get what you deserve. Instead, you get what you don't deserve, and that is acceptance. As we close, I want to read one more passage. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God's grace through Jesus teaches us there's nothing we do to earn love, and hear me, there's nothing we do to sustain God's love. This is the high theological term here. It's called imputation, or even the double imputation, or the double exchange. In a minute here, when I close, we're going to sing a song, The Rock of Ages. And there is a line that says this, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. The double cure is this, that you and I deserve shame and rejection. But God gives us forgiveness because he took the shame and the guilt and the, redemp- and the rejection that we deserve on himself and then he gives us the forgiveness and the acceptance and the goodness and the purity and the righteousness that only Christ has. So if you put your faith in Jesus, you no longer live as one who's seeking to prove him or herself. And let me ask as we close, if you're not a Christian, are you like some members of my own family who think, I need to clean up my life a bit first? Life's a mess. You don't know what I've done. You have no idea what I've done. Essentially saying, I need to get down from the cross like this thief. I need to go prove myself a little bit. God, give me more time. I've got to get some things in order. And then I'll deserve your grace. Then I'll prove myself and you'll accept me. Isn't that exhausting? Are are you exhausted? Do you get that you'll never reach that point? That the only place to be is like that thief on the cross, the second one, who recognizes his shame and his guilt and what he deserves, and then recognizes that God himself took that on himself so that you can have forgiveness and life. If you are a Christian, if you've put your faith in Jesus, stop living as if you need to do more. That's an assault on the cross. That's saying, Jesus, what you went through wasn't enough. I need to do more to be forgiven. The nanosecond after you commit whatever kind of sin it is, your relationship with God is, is in the same place it was before, through Jesus. Forgiven and accepted and loved through Jesus. So by faith, we don't focus on how bad we are, but start focusing on how loved you are. And the crazy maker is this, that the Bible tells us throughout the book of Romans especially that that 
is motivation to not sin. That focusing on how bad you are and trying not to sin leads to more sin. That's what's called the law. That's trying to prove ourselves to God. But recognizing His love for us, His gracious love for us, leads to not sinning. Because it's out of a response of gratitude for what He's already given you that you cannot earn. So as we close, I want to read one last verse from Psalm 145, verse 8, which we've heard week in and week out here. The Lord is gracious and merciful. The Lord is slow to anger. He's patient and He's abounding in steadfast love. Those words are true because of Jesus and what He took on when He shamefully hung from the cross. So let's now prepare to respond to the character of God, which we've seen throughout these four weeks, where we see God is great, so you don't have to be in control. God is glorious, so you don't have to fear others. God is good, so you don't have to look elsewhere. And amen to this, God is gracious, so you don't have to prove yourself. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for... um, for, for, for the time that we get to sit in your word, in your truth. Thank you that we don't just, um, we don't just put information into our heads that, that, that theology is not about just knowing all the right things. It's about being transformed by the truth of the gospel, the good news of the gospel, that Jesus is making all things new, including our brokenness including our tendency to want to prove ourselves to others. Lord, I pray that, that there are some in here right now who, um, who have walked around with this weight, who've tried to prove themselves to others. Lord, I pray that, um, Lord, that, you, will, that you will reveal that, that your grace comes through faith, Lord, and faith comes through hearing and hearing the Word of God. Lord, I pray that you have, you have done a work through your Word, of transforming us, Lord, of, of, of opening our eyes to have faith in Jesus. Lord Jesus, even now as we sing, I pray that the reality of the shame, the rejection that you took on was given so that we might have life in the fullness with nothing to prove and no one to impress because we are fully accepted and fully loved by our Heavenly Father. We pray in Jesus' name.